In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Paraclete, Spirit of Truth, You who are everywhere present and fill all things, Treasury of all that is good, Master of life, Come, dwell within us, cleanse us from all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Mary, cause of our joy, pray for us. Father, and of the Son, Spirit, Amen. Well, we're going to continue looking at the letter to the Romans. Uh, last time, uh, we did the first seven verses, which were introductory. Now today, we're going to be looking at some uh, preliminary discussion to prepare ourselves so that next time we enter into uh, Paul's first main point. So today, starting with verse 8, I give thanks to my God through Jesus Christ concerning all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in the whole world. My witness is God, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, how ceaselessly I make mention of you always in my prayers, asking if somehow, sometime at last, I might have the way cleared in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you. Now Paul is a saint and a mystic. He's not a tourist. Why does he want to get to Rome? He's already been evangelized. Nobody knows by whom. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, and one of the early fathers said, Romans evangelized was no apostle, no miracle worker, no whoever it was, the Lord used them to lay the foundation for Rome, the capital city of the whole church, was done by amateurs. Which is interesting. Anyway, Paul wants to go there because he knows he has a gift and he wants to share that gift. At the expense of his own travel, his own danger, getting in trouble there in Rome, as he ultimately does and is killed. Trouble was in Jerusalem, but he was killed in Rome. Uh, he wants to go, and he says, you see, uh, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual grace to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually comforted among you through the faith we have in each other, both yours and mine. So he wants to go to bring the apostolic grace to bless the people there. In another letter, uh, which he's probably already written, he said in Galatians, remember, I live now, not I. Christ lives in me. That's a remarkable state of union with the Lord Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. It's Christ preaching. It's Christ healing. It's Christ speaking. It's Christ suffering. You know, it's Christ forgiving. I don't live. Christ lives in me. So in a way, you see, this is the desire of the Lord to bring the grace he has given to Paul to Rome. And as we're going to be able to glean, and I think I mentioned last time, glean at the other end of the letter, um, there's tension between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And one of the reasons why Paul spends those famous chapters in Romans 9, 10, and 11 trying to impart to people his understanding of God's plan. 
Now remember, Paul is a mystic. St. Teresa of Avila is a mystic. And she was very enlightened. But Paul grasps, as we'll see when we finally get there to that part of the letter, the future of Israel. The Lord has showed him what the plan is. And he wants to bring it there so that um, that church, which is so key to the whole future of the gospel, uh, be at peace and not be um, divided Jewish believer and Gentile believer in any way at all. And that's his um, goal. So that's what he's talking about here. Um, you see, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual grace to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually comforted among you through the faith we find in each other, both yours and mine. And then, this is all introductory material, you see. I do not want you ignorant, brethren. He often says this, he likes that phrase, you know. That many times I have intended to come to you, and I have been hindered up until now. Why? Could have been um, Satan stopping him, you know. He mentions that in another letter about another occasion. Because if that church in Rome gets it together and is strong and clear and able to endure martyrdom, which will soon happen, uh, it happens to Paul himself in Rome, uh, the church will grow, huh? the blood, of Mar- the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians, Tertullian will say. So he wants to go there to, uh, uh, as he says, to inquire some fruit among you as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want to bring more Gentiles into the church and calm whatever division or tension there is between these parts of the church. And that's why, as you remember, when we get there, he talks about you Gentiles, you are on a a wild olive branch, olive tree, and you've been grafted into the native olive tree, where you're producing beautiful fruit. But the root of this tree is God's call to the Jews, God's call to Abraham, eventually. And so, it's a chance to understand all of God's plan for the world. What has God done? Well, starting with the call of Abraham, you know, he started a, a plan. Then the children of Abraham, and they were finally in Egypt for 400 years. And then Moses brought them out, put them back into the land that he promised them. They conquered in war, and they won the land, and that's where they lived. That was probably about 1215 B.C. So, for another 1200 years, God worked with the Jews to form them. You know how hard it is to get formed with all that we have, including the direct speech of the Son of God Himself in the Gospels and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the new law. And we still don't get it straight. And we certainly don't live it out. But we'd have thousands of saints and the world would see that's the way to live look at that 
The God they worship is the true God, and he can help us live a life so that our families are prosperous and affectionate, so that neighbors help one another. Those who are not believers can be won over. You see? Uh, because the best advertisement is a satisfied customer. Look at a group of Christians who really love each other, who really love everybody else, who can care for other people. That's what Paul has in mind for Rome, a divided church, I mean a, a united church. This is why he's saying these things, you see. See, then he says, he goes on, to both Greeks and barbarians, to both wise and foolish, I am a debtor. At this time in history, uh, the apogee of culture was Greek. The Romans copied a lot of Greek stuff, and they had armies, and they were good at trading. But intellectually, the world looked up to the Greeks. They were awfully smart people. If you ever get a chance and you like this stuff, read a history of the beginnings of philosophy, Thales, all these people. Where did they get that drive of mind? You see, uh, it was a desire, the right kind of curiosity, to see something and wonder why. So he's saying to Greeks, and then the others, the others are bearded. You see, barbara means beard. So the Greeks were usually clean-shaven and uh, uh, intellectuals. Oh, my Lord. At this time... The official language of Rome was Greek. The liturgy was celebrated in Greek, uh, not Latin, for the most part. So then the big translation into Latin, and you had all the problems we got now after Vatican II. Oh, it's a doggerel language, it's a bad translation, it's no good, but everything you got now. When you talk about English or French or German or Spanish or whatever, they had back there when they went into Latin. It's good to know that so that we don't get too wrapped up in the language. You can say Mass in Afghanistan, easy if you want. It's still valid. It's not the language. It's the faith and the love of the Lord and the love of each other. And then, listening to the Holy Spirit to make it beautiful. Make it beautiful. Make it bring people. So you see, that's why he says, the world is divided into Greeks and barbarians. Every non-Greek is a barbarian, except those who embrace and learn Greek culture. When you, you know, when you study, uh, you know, we all have to learn, if we're going to study the Bible and teach it, we all have to learn Greek and, uh, and Hebrew. But you see, Greek is such a sophisticated language. Actually, the New Testament uh, exploits about 30%, 35%. Of the linguistic potential of Greek. It is such a sophisticated language. So he's saying, you see, I'm indebted to both Greeks and barbarians, to and then wise and foolish. Now, I don't know whether it means Greeks equal wise and barbarians equal foolish, or whether it's another category, but uh, I'm a debtor, you see. Thus, my ardent desire is to preach the gospel to you as well in Rome. I don't care if you're Greek culture or barbarian culture, that is, Latin culture, you know, I want to preach to you. Now, did he know Latin? We don't know. He certainly knew Greek, by golly. And he knew Aramaic, and he knew Hebrew. 
Uh, but whether you know, he tried learning these languages when he went to Derbe and all the Iconium, all these places. There'd be some who knew Greek. When I first traveled in Europe, that would have been 1950, I don't remember now, 58, 56, surrounding there sometime. Everybody, if they spoke their own language, they spoke another language, they spoke French. When I was in Greece, my Greek is not, my spoken Greek is not that great, you know. So I would speak French. Everybody understood me. French was la lingua franca, the universal language at that time. You see, was was Greek. And now, with that time, it was French. Now it's English. Because of la musica. I mean, the money. Uh, but I can remember being in Greece and speaking French to everybody because that was the language. Okay. I'm a debtor to both of them. You see? Um, and that's why my ardent desire is to preach the gospel, the good news, to you as well in Rome. I want to come and share the good news. And I am conscious of having been anointed to preach the good news. I can rely on the grace I have been given by my Lord Christ to preach the good news. I am confident of that. And I am ready to lay down my life for that. And that's where his boldness comes from. That's where his, you know, I'm going to tell the world about this. And the Lord is going to help me. As he says in the recalling his first days in Thessalonica. You know, see? And finally he says, you know, that uh, the word of God is at work in you. You see? So thus, thus far, that's his introductory. Now we're going to start looking at what he says about the gospel.